And now hear God's holy word from Titus, the first chapter of this epistle. This is God's holy word. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, with the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Two, Titus, a true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you to impress it upon our hearts. May we have open ears and open minds to receive the things that your servant Paul communicated by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Father, strengthen me today as I attempt to deliver this word and uh, help me to be articulate and, uh, and deliver us from every distraction, deliver us from all error, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I think back over my years of formal education, I can't remember anything much more frustrating and inequitable as the group project. I absolutely dreaded those. I dreaded the group project. When the instructor would say, okay, everybody team up in groups of three or groups of five. When I, just hearing those words, a ball of anxiety would form deep in my stomach for many reasons. First, because for most of my time as a young man, I was a quiet loner and I didn't have many natural connections to other people. So it was very hard to think of three or five people who would be a natural fit for me. And, and, uh, and it made things socially uncomfortable. Second, these situations were academically problematic, I always believed, because they inevitably incentivize laziness. Uh, some people will always do more work than others. Some will do less than others, but everybody gets the same grade. And that never seemed fair to me. I wanted to be graded by my work, not by anyone else's work. And then lastly, because there comes a point in, in the early formation of these study groups or these project groups where there's a power struggle, either because no one wants to lead or more than one person wants to lead. And the person who fills that leadership vacuum is not always the most qualified person to do so. Either they don't listen or they overcommit to these grandiose, impossible ideas. You have a week to do the assignment and they think that they can do something over the top. They're an overachiever or, or they're simply bad organizers. They don't communicate effectively. They're inefficient. In, in my estimation, and in my experience, these groups seldomly function well. You have to assert yourself if you're gonna take control over your own grade and you're gonna end up doing other people's work for them in the end. 
But I suppose that these group projects and these settings were helpful in this way. They are microcosms of all human relationships. We often get thrown together in these various settings, and whether we like it or not, all human relationships are hierarchical. There are always leaders, there are always followers. And someone must step up, someone must step out and say, I'm going this way, who's with me? You feel this in big and small ways. You may be at a conference or a meeting or a, or a committee and it's time to break for lunch and everybody's kind of standing around saying, where are we gonna go for lunch? I don't know, where are we gonna go for lunch? And I feel myself often being the one who says, you see that place over there? I'm headed that way, who's with me? I'm going over there and who, you don't have to follow me. I don't care if you follow me, I'm hungry and I'm going over there to eat. And if you wanna eat, come with me. That's, that's what you, somebody has to stick out their neck and say, follow me. I'm going over there. Someone has to fill the leadership vacuum when everyone else is stumbling and incapacitated and ineffective and unable to make a decision. Now, we might be inclined to theorize in a, in a perfect society, maybe some kind of communal, pure democracy would be ideal where everyone has an equal say and everybody has equal influence and everybody just kind of uh, contributes equally and no one is in authority. We may think that that's a great situation, but the reality is that we are comforted by, we are invigorated by, we, we are strengthened by confident, capable leadership, whether in the home or in society, at the office, and certainly within the church. But what makes someone confident and capable and qualified to lead is another matter altogether. What are you looking for when you say, I want a strong leader? Uh, Pastor John MacArthur has written and taught extensively on leadership. He's, done, he's, been, he's been writing on leadership for, for, since the 70s, and he's done a lot of great work. And he identifies the secular approach to leadership and what the world recognizes as the strong natural leader, the SNL, as he calls it, the strong natural leader. He characterizes it this way. He says, a strong leader, a strong natural leader is visionary. They may not see what's going on up close. They're always out there building the next building or conquering the next continent or winning the next battle. They are action oriented. They rarely sit and contemplate. They're always on the move. Uh, they are uh, risk takers. They're courageous. They have enough nerve to do some things that no one else would do in many cases. Fourthly, they say a strong natural leader is energetic. If they were children, you would call them hyperactive. Uh, they're always, always moving. Fifth, a strong natural leader tends to be objective-oriented rather than people-oriented. He sees the accomplishment of a goal rather than the people involved um, as, as, as the mission. The, the, the mission is, is the goal. And very often, people are, in, in a secular sense, when you're talking in a secular way about the strong natural leader, people are simply little tools that he uses to get his goal accomplished. Six, strong natural leaders tend to be paternalistic. They are uh, like fathers. They play the father image or like the, the great hen with the wings over everybody, making sure that everybody comes under the care and protection that they offer. Seventh, they're normally egocentric. The whole world revolves around them. Eighth, they tend to be intolerant of incompetence in others. The one thing that drives them up the wall is when somebody else can't perform the way that they expect them to. And ninth, they want you to believe that they're indispensable. You can never get along without them. That's what they hope that you believe, that you need them uh, at all times. Now, in the corporate world, 
And in politics, one of our culture's predominant models of leadership is the SNL, the strong natural leader, who's visionary, action-oriented, courageous, energetic, objective-oriented, paternalistic, ego-centered, intolerant of incompetence in others, and indispensable. Now, uh, Pastor MacArthur wrote this several years ago, and one that I think that we could add to that now, one other uh, manipulating factor that uh, secular, I'm talking about non, I'm talking about outside of the world of church and Christian society, you could add one more thing to that, and that's sensitivity to not hurt the wrong people's feelings. I'd be very careful. This compassion doesn't extend to everybody, but there's a protected class whose feelings you must not hurt. You must not do anything to offend the protected class's feelings. You can hurt other people, um, but the protected class cannot sin. And so therefore they can never be exhorted. They can never be corrected. They can never be admonished. And this comes off as compassion and this comes off as real sensitivity, but it's a very focused sensitivity. Now, if you take all of these qualities, and, and if you have one of these as a leader in the church, if you call one of these to be a pastor or an elder, you're headed for big problems. Now, maybe if you squint a certain way and you say, well, their drive is kind of like faith and their sensitivity to specific people might be compassion and their energy looks like tireless obedience. Um, you, you, try to, you try to make those connections, but the kind of person that MacArthur describes here is focused on building his own name, his own kingdom. He really loves the acclaim and the influence he gets by being in a position of leadership. He leads, not because he's looking at this as a way to serve others, to pour himself out for others, but in order to have things his own way. Especially in the church, we, we can attract these guys who, who think of the church as part of the furniture of their life. And so I want the people and I want the church to look a certain way so that it reflects on me that I am a person who has it all together. And so the church can't have any you know, outcasts or weirdos or anybody who embarrasses me uh, because that re reflects poorly on me rather than seeing that these are the people that I'm, I'm called to serve. By the way, when I talk about outcasts and weirdos, I'm, always, I'm in that category. So just in case you wonder uh, if that's a pejorative, I, I find myself there often. So um, he, 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 he wants to lead because he really likes being followed. And these guys are wrecking balls. They're like tornadoes who blow through the church, leaving a lot of problems and a lot of people in their path of destruction because they're singularly focused on their goals rather than on the people they're called to serve. Now, when God's word describes the qualifications for leadership in the church, none of those attributes are on the list. Nothing that I just listed, nothing that MacArthur gives us. Paul doesn't tell Titus, uh, brother, when you go sit up elders in the church, Make sure you have a lot of guys who are egotistical. You know, make sure you have a lot of guys who are intolerant and who are really bad at delegating. Um, make sure you've got somebody who can shame people into submission. Make sure you get one of those. I mean, we really need some great guilt manipulators around here. That's what, that's what really moves the church forward. No, that's not what he says. In fact, none of those descriptions end up in the list that Paul gives Titus. He says they are to be blameless, stewards of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not violent, not greedy. See, it's a very different list that Paul gives Titus. These things are very important for us to consider and think about and study right now because in a couple of weeks, we're gonna hold a congregational meeting 
to vote on a new elder candidate. A few months ago, we added three more faithful deacons. And as we grow, we're going to continue to need to raise up teachers and servants and counselors and leaders of ministry. It's critical that as we do this, as we build up our team, that we don't behave like we're all stuck in the same you know, biology lab together, doing a group, a group project, working on a, a project together. You know, where, Who's going to lead us? Well, that girl has all the colored pens, so maybe she should be the leader. She's the one, she's a natural leader because she's got the, you know, the green and the pink and the orange pens. That we, that's not how we decide on what makes a great leader, but that we have clear expectations and that we have biblically informed standards all around on both sides, on both the sides of the leader and on the side of the congregation. You know, we do not take our cues. We don't define good leadership by taking cues from corporate America or the movies or civil government, but we follow God's standard. And one place to get that is in uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the young minister, Titus. Here, Paul writes as an apostle in the authority that he received directly from Jesus. And he writes to this young man who is serving the churches on the island of Crete, which is in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's somewhere between modern day Turkey and modern day Greece, uh, a little south of both of them, right in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's, it's got a land area of about 3,200 square miles. And even in the ancient world, there were towns and villages and cities all around the border of the, of the island. And so by this time in history, many of these towns and villages and cities had Christian communities springing up, Christians living among these communities. And so Paul has, has appointed Titus to go to Crete, to live there for a while, and to bring good order to the churches. And the way that he wants to bring good order, and the number one need is to fill the leadership vacuum. He says in verse five to Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. The priority is to identify and appoint good men to the office of elder. And the word he uses here, the word translated elder in our Bibles is presbuteros, which means in a plain sense, I mean, the Bibles translate it right. It is elder. It does mean an older man, but it's not just someone with gray hair. It's, it, it has an added usage in the world of Judaism. It's familiar as a, as a title for an office, the position of somebody who manages the affairs of the community or someone who judges the Sanhedrin, the court of, of the Jews that decided, uh, made judgments. Those were all elders on the, on the Sanhedrin court. It was a title. It was a position. In many places of the Bible, we read about the, the, the elders who sat in the city gates uh, when you sit in the gates of the city, when the elders sit there, you can see who's coming and you see who's going. You see what's going on. The, the gate of the city, you know, ancient city that was walled, you have an entrance and an exit where everything, all the commerce and all the visitors and everybody comes and goes through this one access point. And so when the elders sit there, they can see who's coming in. There may be somebody that you don't want to let in. 
There may be somebody leaving who you may not want to let out. You may ask uh, someone leaving, where are you going with your uncle's mule? Does he know that you have it? So questions like that, because you know the people well enough, you know the city well enough, you know what's going on. And you know, there may be some people who don't go out or shouldn't go out with the thing that they're carrying. So you stand there as a gatekeeper, as a watcher. And the elders at the gates were available when there's a dispute or there's a contract to negotiate. Remember in the book of Ruth, when Boaz gets 10 elders together, he gets the elders of the city to help him uh, figure out this inheritance of his dead relative and to understand whether he can lawfully marry Ruth. Uh, Those were the elders, those are the city elders that he got together to do that. So So for this responsibility, you are looking for older men, experienced men, but men also with wisdom and with discernment. You're looking for men with skill and ability. Uh, So Titus himself is a young man. He's referred to as a young man. Timothy is a young man. The apostle John is a young man. And they're all serving in these very influential uh, roles and in these offices. Their age didn't disqualify them, but age wasn't the only qualification. You could be an elder in, in years of maturity and in years of faithfulness and submission to the Lord Jesus and, uh, and be a little bit younger man. So Paul employs this title, presbyteros, which is, of course, where we get the word Presbyterian. Presbyterian churches are churches led by and governed by elders, presbyters. And in Presbyterian church government, we have Uh, elders over local churches who also gather in larger assemblies called presbyteries. I'm going to spend just a few minutes going over this because I know a lot of you are newer to our our church and newer to our church government. And I want to just kind of spend a few minutes helping us all understand so we all have the same expectations of what uh, we're looking for in church leadership. How does church government, how does it work? In our church, we recognize two different kinds of of elders. There are ruling elders who are like the elders at the gates. They examine and admit people to the body. They exercise discipline to put people outside the church when it's necessary. Ruling elders administrate, they lead, they counsel, they arbitrate, they exercise discipline, uh, they act as judges in difficult situations that come up. That's the role of the ruling elder. And then there are teaching elders. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul recognizes those elders who labor specifically in word and doctrine. And so a teaching elder is also known as a minister or as a pastor, a a full-time elder, one whose vocation is to be an elder, who has the specific duty of teaching the word, of counseling, of shepherding, of discipling. So ruling elders and teaching elders serve together on what we call the session. We call the board of elders the session. We sit in session together um, as, 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 as elders over the church. And we recognize another biblical office, which we studied a few months ago when we ordained our new deacons. We have the biblical office of deacon. 
Deacons serve together with the elders to manage the physical needs of the body. Deacons make sure that we have a place to meet, that they manage the finances, they collect and disperse the offering, they care for the widow, they care for the orphan, they care for the stranger, uh, all of the physical needs of the church, all the things that happen behind the scenes that you just take for granted. The fact that when you came in, there was a chair to sit in and, uh, and lights that were turned on over your head and the fact that there's a, a hymnal in your seat, those links. That's all. That's a deacon. There's a deacon somewhere behind all of the things. There's bread and wine on the table because a deacon put it there. They take care of all the physical needs of the church. And so occasionally deacons and elders meet together in consistory. So Paul calls on Titus to appoint elders and he does that with the authority of an apostle. This is an exceptional, an exceptional time in history where the gospel is going out to all these nations where every Gentile Christian is a baby Christian. There's an eagerness, there's an energy, sure, but there's a lot of immaturity in the church. There are threats from the idolatrous culture from the outside. There are threats from synagogues who don't like what the church is doing. There are threats from the culture all around. So we don't have in the first century a luxury of time to wait around until all the churches mature and have men that they can elect and do, do it the normal way. So Paul tells Titus, go there, Find faithful men of good character. Here are the qualifications. Appoint them to lead the churches. Now today, things are settled out and we don't have apostles who are personally called by the Lord Jesus, who are given authority by Jesus. Uh, ordinarily, we don't just pick elders and deacons uh, out, of, out, of the, out of the mass. Though there would be exceptions, I imagine if we went to some new area of the world and preached the gospel to an untaught region and formed churches there, we would appoint elders, we might appoint pastors, but that would be an exceptional case. Ordinarily, church officers are chosen by the congregation. Uh, you, you nominate them. You ask for these, these to be officers and the session examines them. We see, are they, are they faithful? Are, do they know what they're talking about? Do they know what they're doing? Um, and, then, and then you decide whether or not you want to elect them and install them. And if the congregation doesn't think that an officer is doing a good job, or if you think that someone needs to be on the session who isn't on the session, you think someone needs to be an elder, you can nominate them or, or there are procedures in place to remove uh, uh, men and place other men on the session. Uh, you can write a complaint. And if you feel like your complaint's not heard by the elders, then you write to the presbytery. You can appeal. You see, we have these layers of protection, but we believe that biblical church government is representative government. You choose who you want to serve in these offices and then you follow them. We, we don't have congregational meetings for everything. I've shared with many of you stories in my early years as a, as a pastor in a congregational church where we had to have Sunday evening business meetings uh, for everything. We couldn't make a single decision without bringing it before the entire congregation. I remember one marathon Sunday night congregational meeting where we discussed whether or not we were going to fix the men's bathroom um, and decide whether or not that that was something we needed to do or uh, whether we ought to buy our light bulbs from somewhere else and get a, get a better deal when, you know, half the light bulbs in the building are burned out and should we buy light bulbs? And instead of just ordaining and setting apart deacons for the task of taking care of those things, and you have a light bulb budget, and if the bathroom's fixed, 
I don't want to know about it. I mean, I don't want to know that it's broken. Just go and fix it and just get it done. And get it. You, we don't need a congregational meeting to decide on these very small things. So we, we elect men so that they do the job, so that the, the work is delegated and so that it gets done. So we very rarely have a congregational meeting. We uh, have a congregational meeting to elect officers. We have a congregational meeting to... Uh, to, to do any real estate transaction, so any purchase or sale of real estate, because all of our tithes and offerings go, it's one of the biggest line items in the budget is meeting space. So we need to have your buy-in before we make real estate transactions. And then constitutional amendments, if we want to change the way that we run things. Other than that, we elect leaders who lead. We delegate to deacons who do the job. And so when Paul writes to Titus, uh, he uses the word elders in plural. He says, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. More than one, maybe two, maybe three, but more than one. There must be a plurality of leadership so that we can have mutual accountability. I'm a sinner. Our other elders and our other deacons are sinners. We are all tempted toward poor judgment, toward error, toward sinfully responding to things. Uh, together, though, we sharpen each other and we correct each other. We can't have one dictator or one overlord in the church. We have plurality, and plurality also means that we provide mutual support and encouragement. If there's only one set of shoulders to bear the emotional and physical and spiritual weight of the needs of the congregation, if all that's on one person, those shoulders will break and pretty quickly. But when we're working together, we are giving each other feedback and support. We're grieving together. We're laughing together. And the burdens become lighter. Plurality brings increased wisdom and experience. And this doesn't work by addition. This works by multiplication. We bring out the best in each other. And plurality means that we benefit from a diversity of gifts. No man has every gift necessary for the work of the ministry of the church. But when we mix our gifts, one is strong where another is weak and we shore each other up. So we know we need elders, plural. Who do we choose? How do we know who is qualified? Paul gives Titus a list. He says, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife. Those words are deliberately masculine. The elder must be male. Both in the letters to Timothy and to Titus, he uses a specific term for man. There's no chance that he's just saying, uh, you need to get a human. <laughs> There's no chance it's some, some gender neutral term that he's using there. Um, this doesn't mean that women don't have glorious, vital callings. Women are called to be mothers. Women are called to do things men can't do, will never do. I mean, biologically, it's impossible for me to be a mother. I can't, I can't even be a bad mother. It's, no, it's impossible. I can't mother. I'm not a woman. But women are called to be mothers and women are called to glorify and enhance and, and respond and to, um, to, to, to take what they're given and make glor glorious things out of them. Women have vital roles, but this office is something that God has called man to do because men are called from creation to initiate, to lead, to rule. See, God called men to be priests before him in Israel. 
Men were the heads of tribes. When Jesus came, he could have picked a few women. There are some wonderful, amazing, incredible, faithful women available at the time we read about them in the gospels. We know their names. And if Jesus wanted to make a point about doing things differently than they were done in the old covenant, if he wanted to make a point that, well, you know, this is a new deal I'm doing in the new covenant. And I know how things are going to be in the 2020s. And I know how hard it's going to be for you to get around and, and talk about male leadership um, and, and so maybe we should just pick one or two. I mean, just a token, you know, one or two women and add them to the apostles. Jesus could have done that, but he chose 12 men. And we might assume, well, all of this is just kind of patriarchal, ignorant, ancient behavior. And they, were, they hated women and women had no role in, uh, in life or in worship or in religion in the first century. And so they're just following the cultural standard. Absolutely false. There were priestesses in every other religion. There were fertility cults and women ruling and women running in and all of the pagan, uh, in all the pagan religions of the ancient world. What what Jesus does by calling only men and what God does in Israel by calling only men to be priests was countercultural. It, it was revolutionary. Oh, wow, this is different that only, only men serve in these roles. See, God has created men and women with specific responsibilities and duties in the world. When he creates you a man, he creates you with duties. He gives you responsibilities. It's not just, it's not just that you, know, you, you have a hairier face uh, or you have hairier arms. That's not, what, when, my, when, when God creates you as a woman, he creates you built in with specific responsibilities and duties and roles in the world. Sex is duty. Sex is responsibility in the world. And to men, he has given the responsibility for protection, and provision and stewardship in his church. God wants men to be gatekeepers of his church. God wants men to be the judges. God wants men to represent his son before the church so that when you hear the word of God read and preached publicly, the bride hears God's word in the voice of the groom. You hear it in the voice of, of the groom in a masculine voice, just as I represent Christ before you in word and sacrament today. I'm not Jesus. I am not, uh, I, I'm, I'm not uh, pretending like I'm him. That's not what it is. But I represent the Lord Jesus before you today in word and sacrament. And something fundamental breaks down when you put a woman in this role. Pragmatically, in the home, women and children flourish under faithful male leadership. How do you get faithful male leadership? Well, men are challenged and encouraged to be the men they are called to be by other men. It takes men to call men to be faithful men and to lead and love and provide and protect for women and children. And women and children flourish when men are faithful in their, in their duties. The church has suffered from a severe lack of masculinity since the mid 1800s. And as the church has lost men, the church has lost the culture. The church has become uh, uh, effeminate and, and, and no man wants a real part of that. I told some of you, and I, I know I've told this story before, but as a teenager, I, I was nearly just left the faith because I go to church and there's this saccharine funeral music all the time. These hymns about flowers and gardens and, and, and not even like, you know, real biblical garden imagery, but like, you know, uh, 
just um, songs about mama and, and all of this stuff. And, and no man wants a part of that. No teenager who wants to be a man in the world wants a part of that. I thought if, if to, be, to be a Christian, I've got to turn into my grandma. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. But you see, when you call men to a masculine faith and when you sing warlike psalms and you have faithful whole Bible preaching and you drink real wine and eat real bread at the Lord's table, you give men a mission, you get the man, and if you get the man, you get the family, and then you get the society. I'm not saying that church is only for men. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that the ministry or the teaching or the worship is only for men. God forbid, that's not true. But I'm recognizing that when faithful men are ordained to lead men, you end up getting the whole house in order and the whole society follows. And where we failed and where we've broken down is we've acted like none of this matters. We've acted like there's no creation order and there's no structure and we just flatten out the order that God has ordained. So I, I'm not going to apologize for it. Uh, God is our father and he sent his only begotten son to woo the bride, the church. Those things are indelible. You can't change them. You can't mess with them. And God forbid we even try. And so um, we shouldn't apologize at all. But Paul is very clear. He says, a man must be blameless, the husband of one wife. This is the next qualification. This is an express prohibition of polygamy, which was a problem in the ancient world. The elder is a representative of Jesus to the bride. He's a representative of Jesus to the congregation. Jesus has one bride. Jesus is a one woman man. Jesus has the church. He's not a polygamist. And this also speaks to marital history. The, the, the elder can't be divorced from a woman without biblical cause. He can't, he can't divorce a woman. Uh, there are biblical causes for divorce, but the elder can't have an unbiblical divorce and go on and marry another woman. Jesus calls that adultery. And adulterers and fornicators are obviously disqualified. Ultimately, he is to be the husband to his wife. He's to love her and honor her and serve her. If he can't serve his own wife, how is he supposed to serve the bride of Christ? So he's to love and serve and be a husband to his wife. Next, Paul says, he must have faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Dissipation is incorrigibility. Uh, a, a, a child who is accused of dissipation can't be corrected. Uh, they are bereft of all rule and discipline. They're out of control. They have no boundaries. Uh, they'll, they'll do anything. Anything that comes to mind, they'll do it. And insubordination is a total lack of respect for authority. They will not obey. And so he says the elder's children must not be characterized by dissipation or insubordination. How the elder manages his own family is a reflection of how he's going to manage the house of God. If his children don't take him seriously, if he doesn't lead his children to take God seriously, that's a big indication of how effectively he's going to lead the church, how he's going to lead people to trust and obey the Lord. It's really easy to put on a good show for a short period of time in public. It's really easy to answer questions the right way and to look like you're really put together for short periods of time. But a man's family rounds out the whole picture. Not only his wife, but his children are going to show whether or not he's a faithful man. A man who trains his children in, in all things that are important to him, that's going to reflect in his children. So 
Is respect important to you? Well, look at your kids. Are they respectful? Is obedience important? Is submission to God? Is worship important to you? Is the Bible important? Well, he can say, oh yeah, all those things are important, but the proof is going to be in his children. A man who has no ability to rule over his own house is going to be incapable of ruling in the church. We're not talking about having perfect kids. What we're after is when they mess up, when they fail, when they sin, how does dad respond? Does he side with his kids in their sin or does he side with the Lord Jesus, side with God and his law? You know me and you know how much I love my children. You know how deeply, deeply I love my children. I, uh, my heart swells with pride and gratitude over my kids. I love them so much but I do not love them more than I love the Lord Jesus. And they know that. They know that I do not love them more than I love Jesus. And they know that if they rebel and they know that if they sin and they know if they walk away from the faith, they know that I will oppose them. I will oppose their sin. I will stand with Jesus against them in condemnation and rebuke and admonition for their sin because I do not love them more than I love God's law. I do not love them more than I love Jesus. And, and, and I love them by loving Jesus. I love them by loving God's law. And so they know if you walk away, if you sin, if you really mess up, I'm not gonna support you. I'm not going to endorse you in your sin. I'm not going to just be happy and fine with you leading a life of rebellion. And so in this too, the elder is an example to the congregation that our children must know that we are going to restrain their sin. We are going to be a roadblock between them and folly and destruction. We are going to oppose their sin. And if they continue in it, we stand with Jesus against you and your sin. That's the way it is. We're standing with Jesus. Jesus all the time. The elder must be out in front with that uh, as a standard. He continues, he says, for a bishop must be blameless. He changes titles here. He changes it from uh, elder to bishop. And the word bishop means overseer. The overseer is a manager. It's someone you hire to superintend. It's somebody you hire to lead your workforce, to make sure things are done the way you want them done. So the overseer that the master hires must be blameless. Blameless doesn't mean sinless or else we'd all be disqualified. We're all going to sin, but to be blameless means to be irreproachable. There really is no unresolved baggage that would hurt his ability to lead. We're all going to sin. We're all going to fail. The question is, how are you going to deal with it when you sin? How are you going to deal with it when you fail? Are you going to take care of things? Are you going to quickly repent and seek to make things right? Or are you going to let it fester? Are you going to let it hang out there and have a whole lot of unpaid bills littering the landscape? Now we're going to move quickly through these next couple of sections. Um, but but hear, what, hear what Paul says. He's to be a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. In other words, he's to be sober, clear-headed, reasonable with regard to how he thinks and reacts in general. He doesn't have a short temper. He's not eagerly, e easily angered. He's not governed by his emotions. He's not pushing his own agenda. He's not promoting himself. The church is not a vehicle for him to run the world around him the way he wants it to be run. He doesn't exploit the church for money or reputation or status. He knows that he is a steward of God's treasure house. He's a, he's a shepherd of God's flock. He's, he's a caretaker over God's family. It's not my church. It's 
the Lord Jesus' church. It's not my flock, it's his flock. And I realize my position and my role in that. And that's what he must do. Also, he must be hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Hospitable doesn't mean that he's just really great at throwing dinner parties. <laughs> I love dinner parties. Dinner parties are great. But hospitable means that he's warm, he's welcoming, he's friendly to the stranger, to the outsider, to the outcast, to the sick, to the least of society. Paul says he's to be a lover of what is good, so he loves what God loves and he hates what God hates. He generally has a positive, hopeful, charitable disposition. He is sober-minded. He has to be a clear, critical thinker. He has to be uh, not someone who's muddle-headed, who's not easily confused by all the garbage in the culture. He exercises sound judgment. He knows justice because he knows God's law and he knows how to apply it. He shares God's sense of justice and holiness. He's watchful. He pays attention to what's going on around him. He has his ear to the ground. He knows which way the wind is blowing. He has keen senses and he can control himself. He can control his tongue and he knows when to say no to the flesh. And then the last little bit here, he holds fast to the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. He knows the Bible and he knows how it fits together. You know, we don't look for a world-renowned theologian, though that wouldn't hurt. He doesn't have to be an amazing speaker, though that wouldn't hurt. But he does have to know his stuff and he has to know bad doctrine when he hears it. And he needs to be able to refute and tell the truth, refute bad, bad doctrine and tell the truth. And have the bravery and the courage to both exhort and convict the contradictor. That's what Paul says, convict those who contradict. So getting into church leadership is volunteering to have a big target painted on you. The enemy is going after you first. He's gonna to try to take you down first because he knows if he can spoil you, he can spoil the whole church. And so getting into church leadership means that you're going to be in near constant conflict internally and externally from people who don't want to obey the Lord, people who don't want to hear what the Bible says, people who are not interested in sound teaching, who oppose the Bible. And so because that paints a target on you, and because you're going to be in constant conflict, that's why we need men in these positions. And by that, I don't mean males. I mean, we need men rock-ribbed, steel-spined, hairy-knuckled dudes. That's what we need. Men who are not going to back down, who are not going to concede on the truth, who are not afraid to oppose sin and the sinful, who can look someone in the eye and say, what you're doing is destroying your life and you're destroying your kids and you're destroying your wife and you need to stop it. And I'm here to help you figure out how you're going to stop it. But you have to cease. You have to put this sin away. That's what we need, men who are strong enough to do that. Men who can tell the local bureaucrat or the local leftist resident of town hall, hey, you're overstepping your jurisdiction when you tell me when I can't preach and when I can't worship and what I have to do in worship. You're way out of your lane, buddy. You need to get in yours and I'll stay in mine. That's the kind of man we need in leadership who's willing to speak to those bureaucrats and say, uh, you're, you're, you're way out of line here. That's what an elder is made of. So these are the qualifications of church elders. And next week, we'll look at their duties. And very quickly, in, in, in conclusion, I know what you may be thinking. Well, that's real fun to hear about somebody else's job description. But what does that do for me? Was, okay, good enough. That's what an elder is supposed to be. Well, 
this is relevant to you. This is important because you are called on to encourage and elect and follow men like this. So then when it comes to discerning what makes good order in the church, you are judging by biblical standards and not by secular worldly standards. So you don't think, man, if we just had a pastor or an elder more like you know, Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Dr. Phil or Oprah or Prince, who's that? Prince Harry, what's that? What's that? Yeah, uh, somebody more like that, I could really get behind somebody like that. That'd be a really, those are not your models of leadership. This is why it's important to you is that you have correct assumptions about and correct presuppositions about what leadership is supposed to look like in the church. Secondly, we want elders who fit this description in order to lead us and call us to live the life that's described here. We all want functional homes. We all want obedient children. None of us ought to be self-willed, quick-tempered, given to wine, violent, greedy for money. We must be hospitable, lovers of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, and self-controlled. That list is for us too. It's not like we want to ordain this kind of holy, priestly group of people who do all the good stuff and do all the obedience so we can live like the devil the rest of the week and just sew up at church and nod and say, oh yeah, that's a good guy and eat some bread and drink some wine and go on to our evil lives. That's not why we're doing that. No, we want them to have spines so that we are emboldened, so that we are encouraged, so we can stand courageously together. We see where they are and that's where we want to be. And thirdly, finally, this is a call for all men to consider this. If we needed you to step up and fill a role of leadership in the church, are you ready? Can you do it? Would you do that? Why not? Why, if I asked you, why wouldn't you do it? One of the great tragedies of our day is that men are checked out. I think part of it is you've just, we've allowed ourselves to be pushed out, to be marginalized and believe the narrative that the man God created us to be is uh, kind of a dope and kind of a Neanderthal, and kind of a bully, and kind of incompetent. So if, if that's what it is, well then I just might as well check out. Reject that twisting of God's order. Rejoice in being the man God has called you to be, and know that God has endowed you with masculine responsibility, and prepare yourself for leadership in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in the church. Prepare to be a leader. And ask yourself, where is that leadership vacuum? that I am being called to fill. A leadership vacuum might be in your own living room. It might be in your own dining room. That may, there may be a leadership vacuum there. It might be in your office. It might be in ministry. And if you don't feel quite equipped to lead, if, if, you, if you don't feel up to the test, then find faithful men and follow them. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. Say, oh, men are fallible. What am I doing leading another, following around another man? Men are fallible. Yes, men are weak. Absolutely. Men are prone to error. Yep, they are. And God has ordered his church in such a way that he raises up men to love and serve and steward his bride. It pleases God. And because of the fallibility of man, Jesus doesn't establish dictators in his churches. Neither does he establish pure democracies. Both are because of the fallibility of man. When God sets things in order from the temple to the kingdom to his church, he calls representatives to work together, to serve together, and to manifest his rule, to hold forth his kingship over the world. People in our society have a fundamental problem with rule and authority because we have a fundamental problem with King Jesus and his authority. But it's through his church that we first 
faithfully hold forth his kingship over all things. We demonstrate to the world publicly that this is what a properly ordered society looks like. It's so, so critical that we get this right, that we raise up good men, that we pray for them, and that we follow them into the battle. We'll cover some more next week. For now, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us in raising up faithful men. We pray that you would continue to do so, that our families would flourish, that our marriages would abound with glory and joy, that we would be fruitful in all kinds of ways for the advancement and the glory of your kingdom. Father, grant us this peace and this grace as you guide us. Give us the ability to walk and follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.